Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 218. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, as we count our way down to Shavuot, Pentecost, counting the days between Passover and Pentecost, Lord, we're reminded that these special times on your calendar are meant to remind us of the works of the Master, of the of the ministry of Messiah. Um, as I have aptly noted in some of my own personal studies, the festivals are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. They tell us of the work of Messiah, his redemption, his intercession, his um, sending his spirit, his his gathering us unto himself. And so as we look forward to pass, uh, look forward to Pentecost, counting the Omer, working our way towards this 50-day countdown, we're looking with expectancy as as um, Shavuot celebrates the commemoration of two very, very important biblical events, one of them being the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, according to the reckoning of the rabbis, that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus during the season of Shavuot Pentecost. But to those of us who had named the name of Yeshua as our Messiah, as Lord and Savior, and who have read the New Testament writings, the Apostolic Scriptures, according to the book of Acts chapter 2, we know that the celebration of Shavuot, Pentecost, is the commemoration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. And so, Lord, as we look at these two monumentous events, we have the Spirit and we have the Word, and what a valuable lesson both of those paint for us. So thank you for inviting us into your schedule and into your calendar and helping us to grow and to um, better uh, shape our lives and pattern our lives after our Lord and Savior, Messiah Yeshua. Thank you for the class and those who are participating, those who were able to join me this week. Bless those who wanted to join, but for whatever reason couldn't be with them and strengthen them and continue to raise us up and prepare us for these last days. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. My name is Arben Lyman Hanavi, and you're watching or listening to the live internet studies. This is episode number 218. And in the short study version of these videos, which is broken up into two uh, segments, this first segment is given over to eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. And so eschatology is a study of end time events, such as the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you look on your screen right now, We've been, we missed a week last week due to my own personal illness, so we've got to play, play a little bit of catch up. We are working our way through these topics that you can see on my on your screen right now. This is kind of like a running syllabus, if you want to call it that. We're still in the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we're still looking at the 70th, the final week of years, the final seven years of important uh, history according to God's schedule and according to mankind's dealings with um, uh, God here on earth, or God's dealings with man here on earth. So we're going to probably finish this topic tonight, at least this um, part of the topic, I believe. We've been working our way through a slideshow that I'm going to jump into here in a moment. And we're, we're on about slide 55, so of 80 different slides, so we're, we're near the very end. Um, and then just uh, kind of a, a, to alert you that we're working our way towards this very exciting topic six right around the corner. If we can start it next week, that would be great. If not, it might go one more week over. But the excursus, Antichrist, according to Robert Van Campen, I'll flash a little graphic on the screen of post-production. 
the picture of the book that I've been borrowing some of the notes from, The Sign by late Christian author Robert Van Campen, who passed away just a little over 20 years ago. And he wrote a book on end time events called The Sign, uh, named after Yeshua's discussion with his disciples in Matthew 24, when they ask him, Lord, what is the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? And so he's got this chapter in, or a, a few paragraphs in his book about the coming Antichrist and how his um, identity and his actions can be related to the precursor Antichrist known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the um, heinous individual who is familiar to us from the book of Maccabees. And also if you've ever uh, celebrated Hanukkah, then you're familiar with this particular name, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a forerunner type and shadow of Messiah of um, Antichrist to come. And so eventually we'll get to talking about this character because in my understanding of end time scriptures, Christians will be alive and not raptured yet. I say alive, I mean, if Messiah returns soon, if these end time events start uh, ticking, if the clock starts ticking for the seventh week uh, within our generation, well then I don't believe that we will be raptured away before the Antichrist comes on the scene and begins to make significant strides in his dealings with mankind according to biblical prophecy. So uh, I do believe in a rapture. I just don't, I just don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. I believe in what's known as a pre-wrath rapture, which we will talk about eventually when we get down to topic number nine. But without further ado, let's jump over to the um, slideshow and we'll pick up where we left off. This is, like I said, we're about slide 56. We're in these questions that have to deal with end time um, details. We've already been looking at the seventh week of Daniel and we looked at some timing events, uh, timing details. Let's pick up where we left off two weeks ago. This is the final of these questions or about like a half a dozen questions. These are my own not uh, notes that I put together. And here's uh, the, the final question. And we'll only spend, uh, we'll finish out on this final question. And there's, like I said, there's about 30 more slides left uh, on this final question. So it'll, it'll occupy the entire hour long uh, uh, time slot that we've got available for us. And if you have, to, and if you can stay for the other 30 minute um, apologetic study on Trinity topics, biblical Unitarianism versus uh, Trinitarian perspectives, if you can stick around for that, that would be great. Um, if you can watch, uh, uh, listen and, and join us on that. All right. So the question that I started into uh, two weeks ago, and we only got like one or two slides into it is, if the 70th week is yet to be fulfilled, meaning it's future, why is there such a long gap between the 69th and the... I'm sorry, that's not the one we want. There we go. I just realized we already dealt with that question. Here's the question on the table tonight. If the 70th week is... Well, let's try that one more time. Is that the one I want? There we go. That's the question. Let's get it together, Ariel. Let's try that one one more time. Here is the question on the table tonight. Question, how do we know the first seals of Revelation 6 are within the 70th week of Daniel? So you're thinking Revelation. I'm not. I'm not really familiar with the book. Don't remember exactly what, what's taking place in the Revel, in the book of Revelation. If we have time, if we finish the study in time, uh, you know, within the uh, hour long slot, and I have time, then I will turn to the book of Revelation and we'll read um, as much of we, as of of uh, chapter six as we can. But don't worry. Let's look at this chart. In fact, let me back up. That's what it says. It says let's take a look at the chart to remind us what the seven seals of Revelation chapter six entail. Afterwards, we'll label each seal and place all seven 
seven seals into Daniel's final week of seven years. So remember, I'm working from the understanding that's known as futurist, about four different perspectives. I'll flash a little graphic on screen of looking at the book of Revelation and end time events. Um, one of them uh, puts all of the events over into the first century, um, the preterist perspective. And then there are perspectives that are kind of um, somewhere in the middle between the extremes of preterist and futurist. These would be called like idealist or historicist. Um, all that events in the book of Revelation kind of played themselves out over the course of history, or they're not even really, really events, literal events. They're just kind of ideas in the mind of God that he's conveying through the, the vehicle of the text. And then there's the position known as the futurist position that I take, meaning that most of what we're reading about in the book of Revelation and, and Daniel and all of the discourse, Matthew 25, Luke um, 21, um, Mark, um, I think it's the 17, uh, those par parts in First uh, and Second Thessalonians, the events that we're reading about are actually future, meaning they haven't taken place yet. And so that's the perspective that I take. Now, some of it is history. I, I understand that and I recognize that, but the majority of what's, what we're reading about is future. So let's look at this chart. We looked at this two weeks ago. It's just a refresher. In the book of Revelation chapter 6, John details these seven seals, which are on the outside of this large scroll. And this scroll containing these seven seals can only be opened by Yeshua in the book of Revelation that we read about. Remember, the book of Revelation, the long title is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Jesus himself, of Yeshua. So he's telling us what's going to take place, Yeshua is. If the book of Revelation was written in the late 90s or the mid 90s, like we, like most Bible authors believe it was, myself included, instead of the early 60s, like preterists believe, then these events that we're going to be kind of looking at examining are future even to us in the 21st century. Or Yeah, so they're future to us as well. I believe we're very, very close. I mean, we could be within a generation, meaning that, that these events could start click, uh, checking themselves off right around the corner. So the seven seals of Revelation start out with the first four seals known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You probably heard this one before. You got the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse. These all correspond to the seals that I'll show you in the next slide. And then when we get to the fifth seal, it's this great martyrdom, the souls crying out under the altar that John sees in his vision. And then that follows uh, by the sixth seal, the what we call the cosmic disturbances in heaven and on earth, earthquakes, sun, moon, and stars, uh, losing their light or uh, going super brilliant, et cetera, et cetera. And then the seventh seal on the list there, you can see on the far right side, is this great silence in heaven before, according to John, um, the now that the scroll is open because all the seals on the outside can be have been broken by Yeshua. Now the contents of the scroll are open before us and God starts revealing uh, through his son Yeshua the judgments known as the trumpets, the trumpet judgments. And then those are quickly followed by what we call the bowl judgments. So remember, without getting too confusing, there are a, a significant number of symbols and types and shadows and uh, apocalyptic language, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right, in the book of Revelation. But key to understanding the book of Revelation is um, the chronology of these seven seals, followed by the seven trumpets, followed by the seven bowls, and letting them play out chronologically. 
All right, let's um, so let's continue to look at um, this slideshow. So, how do we know that the first, how do we know the first seals of Revelation six are within the seventh week of Daniel? So, the first seals, the first, if there's seven seals, we'd say like the first four or five seals. When we place these events into Daniel's final seventh week of seven years, the seven seals are going to look like this, and this is according to a premillennial pre-wrath model that I hold to. Premillennial means Jesus rapture and second coming are taking place prior to his establishment of his thousand year millennial kingdom on earth. Most Christians hold to some form of Jesus returning and establishing his kingdom. So it's a, it's a kind of a premillennial. It's a, it's a fairly popular view. Although if you're Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Jehovah's witness, you're likely holding to what's known as an amillennial meaning you don't even believe in a physical thousand-year kingdom of Yeshua here on earth. You rather believe in a spiritual kingdom that's already living in our hearts, and it's kind of embodied in the Christian church as, at, at large, the body of Messiah worldwide, international, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's no need to usher in a physical thousand-year, literal 1,000 years, Jesus ruling bodily uh, from planet earth. But again, I don't take that perspective. That's all millennial. I, oh, I hold to a premillennial. And pre-wrath, when it comes to rapture, he will rescue us from the wrath of God and from the wrath of Satan that will be poured out in those last days. All right, so let's look at this chart. We looked at this last uh, two weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time. This is just a refresher, is that if we correspond the seals to the events down at the bottom of the screen, you can see the first seal corresponds with the kind of the bringing in of Antichrist, the revealing of this uh, rider on a white horse. He comes in as a man of peace, and he's going to hit the scene in that fashion. He's not going to be known particularly as this man of war, or this this man of lawlessness, like Paul describes him in Thessalonians. He's not really going to be recognized right away, especially by the people that he's going to be brokering peace deals with, like, say, Israel, right? They're going to be deceived. They're going to be deceived into thinking that he's able to bring peace between Israel and her surrounding neighbors, right? The Arab nations that are around them, that surround her. And especially some of the big players like Syria or Iraq or um, uh, you know, some of the people a little farther north to her, maybe Russia or something like that, Iran. Um, he, and, and so if an individual shows up on the scene and you start reading in the headlines about peace in the Middle East at last, some sort of contract or covenant, that's likely the Antichrist who's orchestrating those particular events. So that's, in my understanding of end-time events, that will probably be something that's so significant on the world scene that it will not be easy to miss. Although, again, there are, there are events that could take place before that. The, the uh, forming of a 10-nation coalition of, of governments that come together and lend all their support to a, what we might, res, might recognize as some sort, sort of uh, revived Roman Empire or revived European Union or um, collective um, revival of what looks like the ancient Ottoman Empire, um, East uh, Rome and Western Rome coming back together again, Western Rome representing um, uh, the EU on that side of the world and Eastern Rome representing the Ottoman Empire on where, where, where modern day Turkey and um, um, Syria and uh, Iraq uh, uh, 
exist. So um, if we see those those powers kind of coming together and an individual somewhat orchestrating all these um, events and three of those nations get uprooted, well, then that's that's prophecy happening right before our eyes. So uh, be on the lookout for those things. But second seal, world wars. Of course, uh, there's always been wars going on right now. There's currently a war between um, Russia and Ukraine, of course. But there will be more of these types of wars, especially in that part of the world. We're talking about Middle East countries to include eventually parts of Europe because that's the scope of the end time um, battlefield, uh, end time um, stage, if you will, from the biblical perspective is it's Middle East centric, Israel being the bullseye, Israel being the um, epicenter. Eventually it's all going to um, uh, boil down to uh, everyone coming against Israel in one way, one way, shape or another. That's that's kind of the, um, it's, that's kind of the final showdown that we're looking at. The you know the Battle of Armageddon takes place right there in the land of Israel, with army with Satan amassing, uh, using the Antichrist and the false uh, Messiah, the false prophet, to um, uh, amass all of his satanic armies, driven by Satan himself and the de- and the demonic hosts, to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth. Right, because Satan hates God, he hates God's Messiah, and he hates God's people. And guess what? You don't have to be Jewish for to draw Satan's hatred. Um, if you're a Christian, you're drawing hatred, Satan's hatred. So this leads us to um, the third and fourth and fifth seals, famine. Right? How much of this will be spread out across the world? We don't know exactly. The Book of Revelation talks about um, uh, language that that could be prophetic hyperbole. Or it could be literal, meaning when it talks about everyone in the world who doesn't take the mark of the beast and things like that. Um, how much of the famine will be centered just in the Middle Eastern countries where all of these events are unfolding? Or how much of it will spill out over into the nations of the world? We don't know exactly. But eventually, we'll, we'll begin to seal, uh, see during the fourth seal mass death, fifth seal martyrdom of the dead, meaning martyrdom of the believers. Because what's going to happen at the, at the midpoint uh, a very important event is that according to multiple places in the Bible, Daniel, uh, the Gospels, Paul's writings, and the book of Revelation, to name those those uh, locations, is that at the midpoint of the week, according to my understanding of Scripture, the Antichrist is going to take off his mask and reveal to the world who he truly is, that he is Satan incarnate. Indeed, according to Revelation chapter 12, Satan will enter into Antichrist and give this Antichrist his power. It'll be the... Um, evil version of the incarnation where God came into a man in the form of Yeshua, right? God among us, God dwelling with us, Emmanuel, like we sing about him during Christmas time. Well, this will be the opposite of that, the evil version, which is Satan incarnated as the Antichrist. That's at the midpoint. And so what's he going to do? He's going to begin this persecution, first and foremost, of Israel, where he will have already set up his headquarters in Jerusalem, as far as I can understand. He will then turn on Israel and begin persecuting her and begin attacking her. And thus, his hatred of God's people will not just be limited to the Jewish people. It will then spill over into anyone who opposes his claim to be the only true God, which of course every true Christian is going to reject him, right? He takes his seat in the temple, declaring himself to be God according to Paul's letters in Thessalonians. Well, genuine Christians aren't going to go with that. He's going to try and impose the mark of the beast, right? Set up an image in the temple, the abomination of desolation. 
genuine believers are going to be rejecting that. Genuine religious people around the world are going to reject that. So thus, his campaign of martyrdom should um, begin around the fifth seal. Martyred, dead, sixth seal, signs in the sky. God is going to signal that he's going to cut the Antichrist's tribulation or wrath short and that he's about to herald what is known as not just the rapture but also the day of the lord right jesus coming back to judge the wicked and judge the antichrist and the b systems and uh that's basically where we're looking at let's look at another chart that looks at those same events just from a different perspective seventh week of daniel as it relates to Revelation chapter 6, you can see that the last seven years is broken up to neatly into three and a half years and three and a half years. And the first four seals, the ones that we're kind of looking at right now and asking this question, are they contained within the 70th week? Or since we're talking about um, beginnings of birth pangs and sorrows like Jesus talks about in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, are we looking at events really that have kind of been played out over the course of, you know, hundreds of years and thousands of years. I mean, there's always been earthquakes in, in various places in the world. You know, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. There's always been persecution if you're a believer or if you're a Jew. There's always been hunger and famine and 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 all kinds of um, cosmic disturbances. You know, there's we've always had these things. So what what makes me think that all of these things that we're reading about are really the beginning of birth pains or why are they smashed into the last seven years? Okay, well, that's kind of what we're looking at. So the seven seals, one, Antichrist, two, war, three, famine, four, pestilence, five, martyrdom, six, cosmic disturbance, and seven, trumpet judgments. They all really are going to come into a focal point in the last seven years where mankind is basically uh, trying to usurp his own, um, kind of assert, I'm sorry, not usurp, but assert his own, uh, authority and uh, dominance on the earth, right? God is letting man have his final day to try and say, we don't really need God. We don't need Messiah. We can do things our own way, right? Um, human uh, ingenuity and, and, and human effort are, are going to come to a head, essentially. Eventually, what we're going to look at is, and we, we won't do this tonight. I don't believe we'll have time, but eventually we're going to see how that, not just the book of Revelation, but Matthew's um, detail of the end time events are are parked right in the middle between our look at the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, right? Matthew falls between that. And in Matthew 24, we find one-to-one -one parallels given by Yeshua himself. No, no um, surprise there, right? Jesus is the one who gave the words to John in the book of Revelations, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it makes sense that Yeshua's own words in Matthew 24 should mirror what he gave John in Revelation chapter six. They're, they're, it's the same uh, um, same um, originator of the, of, the, of the information, Yeshua himself. The master gave these details. So we can see uh, in Matthew 24 in that chart in this chart, as we compare Matthew 24 with Revelation six and seven, that there's a one-to-one -one correlation between uh, the details. We might get to that tonight. Um, we might read parts of Revelation six, but let's finish this slideshow. So, how do we know that these first seals of Revelation 6 are within the 7th week of Daniel? Here's the beginning of my answer, and we'll just work our way through these slides till we finish. The drive behind the above question is this. This is my own answer. If it's possible that the events reflected in the first three seals are presently happening, like many people say they are, and will continue to happen in future in history future, the timing of the beginning of the 7th week of Daniel becomes indefinable. 
again, there are a good number of people who study the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, book of um, the, the, the gospel accounts, and they say, well, how can we know that we're in the last days? How can we know that we're in the 70th week? When you look around you and there's already wars and famine, and, and it seems like those seven seals are just uh, happening. You know, they've been happening for hundreds and thousands of years since the church has been on the scene. So what's the big deal? How do we know that really this just isn't just another way of saying that all these things have been going on and we just don't know that they're really that we're really in the seventh week. In other words, why, what's the significance of putting everything, putting a lot of them into the seventh week? Let's continue. What I have to say is that the result is that the information in the book of Revelation becomes murky if we do it this way, with regard to understanding and instruction and timing of end time events. If we simply just take the historicist perspective with a little bit of idealist thrown in there, where, well, you know, we can't really say that it's the final 70th week where all these things take place. Maybe a lot of these things already took place. You know, maybe Antichrist, you know, maybe it's not really one Antichrist that we should be looking for, but it's kind of the spirit of Antichrist or a system that's been at work for the last, you know, 2,000 years or so, which indeed there is a spirit of Antichrist in the world today, right? A spirit which opposes Christ. Remember the word Antichrist is both in opposition to Christ as well as replacement of Christ or counterfeit Christ, right? Hey, there's kind of a nuance in that word anti that carries all of those meanings. And yes, there have been antichrists in the world. There have been uh, evil individuals who have been on the scene, who have been persecuting Christians, going as far back as Nero, but going back even earlier than that. I mean, do we have to go, do I have to start with Nero, with, with the emperors, the Roman emperors? No, we can go earlier than that. We can, we already know that Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived a few centuries before the first century, he's a type of Antichrist. But even before that, we had the Hamans, right? Haman in the story of Esther. We had the um, Nebuchadnezzars. We had the um, Cyrus, not Cyrus. He was, a, I guess he was a good guy. Um, we had, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, we had the, the Egyptian pharaohs. So if you look at all the world empires that have existed on the scene and then going coming into our modern age, we've had, you know, our, um, uh, you know, we've had our Hitlers and things like that. We've always had people who are going to oppose God and to are going to persecute the people of God. So what makes us what makes the final seventh week so unique? It's kind of where we're going with this question. Here's what I have to say. If it can be shown that the first three seals of Revelation 6 are indeed within the 70th week of Daniel, then it can be established that there will be a sequence of define, of definite events leading up to the opening of the scroll in Revelation 5, the day of the Lord or his wrath against rebellious mankind. I maintain that when you look at the book of Revelation and just read it in its most natural sense, um, allowing for the symbology to um, carry the chronology along, right? John sees things, and then he says, and then, and then, and then, or and after this, or then I saw. And so he's got these little kind of sequence markers built into his narrative. If we take that at face value and just round the, allow that the book of Revelation was written in the order in which the way John was seeing them, there are some pauses where John stops and details different uh, events that he's seeing, where it takes up a whole chapter, where it doesn't move, seem to move forward. He's just stopping and describing an event. But if we take it at face value, then the sequence owes to this idea that this large scroll with seven seals on the outside, if I can find a picture of, uh, that represents this, I'll flash that on the screen later. But you can't really read the contents of the scroll until you break all seven seals first. So the sequence would seem to suggest that 
first all seven seals need to be broken then the scroll can be unrolled and then within the scroll we start dealing with these seven trumpets and then um we haven't gotten to this yet but there's this smaller scroll a little scroll that is inside of the bigger scroll and if you've ever read a scroll or seen a scroll like a biblical scroll an ancient scroll you'll know that you can't really read all the contents of the scroll until you unroll the scroll same thing with basically the modern book right you flip open the first few pages and until you actually turn to those later pages you can't actually read them so that kind of carries the chronology along so as the scroll is unrolled you can see more and more details and read more and more of the contents and so that's what's what i'm kind of working from so get that kind of picture in your mind john has shown a scroll and god doesn't unroll the entire scroll at one setting he unrolls a little bit and a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more and so we see the events kind of um playing out sequentially before us let's continue so how do we know that these first seals of revelation are within the 70th week of daniel um for the following reasons the 70th week of daniel includes the opening of the first three seals as mentioned in revelation 6. here are some of the reasons i'm going to list about i think four reasons if i remember on my slides here number one these are not in any particular order. These are just as they came to me when I wrote this particular commentary 20 years ago. Number one, if anyone would have understood the structure of the end times, Jesus would, right? He clearly knew that 69 of the 70 weeks have been will have been finished when he was to be cut off and have nothing, according to Daniel 9.26. When he responded to the disciples' question in Matthew 24 about the sign of the end of the age and of his return, right? That's Those were the questions that they asked right at the very beginning of Matthew 24. Then, um, in my understanding, it seems logical that he naturally would have begun with those events that would begin the 70th week. So he would also give the disciples a breakdown of what is to happen sequentially and logically. Now, we know that some of those events took place in the first century, or they were foreshadowed by events that took place in the first century, such as the destruction of the temple in the first century, 70 AD, followed by the um, besiege of Jerusalem, the wars that pursued afterwards, uh, that ensued afterwards, right? The Jewish wars in the 130s with Bar Kokhba and the revolts, and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem, the plowing under of Jerusalem, the expulsion of the Jewish people from Jerusalem, and the beginning of the great diaspora, the exile. So some of those events uh, that Yeshua was talking about, you know, especially when we get to the book of Luke, where he starts talking about when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel and the prophet, let the reader understand. And he correlates that with when you see Jerusalem sounded, surrounded by armies. Well, when was Jerusalem surrounded by armies? Well, it took place in the first century. But according to John's revelation, according to the book of Revelation, and the, according to our understanding of the futurist perspective of the book of Revelation, Jerusalem, once again, will find herself surrounded by her armies. Now, oddly enough, if you look at a map of the Middle East, she's already surrounded by people who don't like her. She's already surrounded by her enemies. But we're talking about an intensified attack against Jerusalem, military campaigns that will be mounting, eventually, excuse me, eventually culminating in what we describe as the, book of, the Battle of Armageddon. I believe there will be some other um, smaller military campaigns that take place before that, uh, what, what I've labeled the Jerusalem campaign and the Jehoshaphat campaign, but we'll get to those in time. So it seems that Yeshua is describing the events logically and chrono chronologically and sequentially to his disciples. Let's continue. Point number two under, these, under this question about how do we know that the first seals of the book of Revelation chapter 6 are within the 70th week? 
In the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24, Jesus is answering the disciples' question as to what the sign of his return and of the end of the age would be. Remember, they asked him two signs. Lord, what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And um, I believe he actually answers the questions in reverse order. He begins giving them details about the end of the age and then he switches over into answering about, and when you see the lightning flashing from the east to the west, then you'll see the sign of the Son of Man in the clouds coming in power in the air, etc., etc. And remember, the language that's used by Yeshua in Matthew 24, when it's correlated against the book of Revelation, we find that the rapture of Yeshua, the rapture of the saints, which is also known as the resurrection of the saints, the rapture along with the second coming, there is similar language. There's almost what we might call um, partial and total fulfillment language or near far language uh, or um, overlapping uh, now and not yet language that's used where it's caused some people to believe that the rapture and the second coming are maybe the same event, they're only one event, but we're going to find out later on that there are enough details in the Bible that that I think we could build a, a case that they are not the same event, but if we, if we simply call it the second coming of a Christ, then it is just one event. The day of the Lord is one event, but there are multiple um, events in his itinerary, if you want to look at it that way. We'll get to that in time. I'm, just, I'm kind of giving you a sneak preview, sneak preview right now. So, um, remember, Jesus is answering their question. If he wanted us to stay in the dark, by the way, as believers, remember, his answer to his disciples there on the, Olive, the Mount of Olives there has been recorded for us by the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now we have these answers, and we can read them today. And so thus, we can now understand that he was not only talking to his disciples, he's talking to us, right? He's talking to all of us who would be reading his words that have been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. Uh, even in this day and age, to do what? To prepare us for these end times. And let me interject right now. Perfect time to let you know, if you want to make it when these times uh, happen, when this end times uh, clock starts tipping, ticking, which I don't believe we're in the seventh week just yet, but um, it seems like there are enough events in place that it could start, uh, the clock could start ticking very, very soon. But if you want to make it during that day, there's really only one way to make it, folks. It isn't going to be your your political position. It isn't going to be your um, Republican or Democratic Party affiliation. It isn't, it isn't going to be your stance on Middle East politics. It isn't going to be your family uh, upbringing, your family association, your pedigrees, how many doctorates and master's degrees uh, that you've earned, or how high your IQ is on the scale. None of that. It's not going to be your bank account. It's not going to be your portfolio. It's not going to be um, uh, how many... Uh, uh, stocks and bonds and, and, and all those things that you've got amassed, your wealth isn't going to be able to save you in that day. There's only one thing that will save you when this time comes, when, the, when, the, um, when these uh, uh, events start pouring down on mankind and people are losing their minds. And the only thing that will save you is a genuine relationship with Yeshua. That's the only thing that will save you. You've got to set your heart on the master, you've got to open your heart to his Holy Spirit. You've got to allow his words to permeate your thoughts and your heart and your actions and drive your beliefs and your your um um your thinking. So if you're if you're a Christian today, you need to um um 
You need to strengthen your walk with the Messiah. But if you're not a Christian, then you need to settle it with yourself. You need to settle your um, accounts with God. And uh, today is the day of salvation, right? There's the, don't wait. Don't wait, right? Um, you need to begin to make a decision for Messiah very, very quickly. So let's continue. So Yeshua is answering this question that his disciples have. And he could have just left them in the dark. He could have told them, you know, you guys don't need to worry about any of those details. When it happens, it'll happen. And, um, you know, just, just go about your everyday lives and I'll take care of everything behind the scenes and w- me and my father will figure everything out. No. They ask him, what are the signs of your coming into the end of the age? And he just launches right into all these details, right? And so um, in giving his response, I say his, he begins a, with a warning and then this statement in verse 5 of Matthew 24. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and will mislead many. So that corresponds to that first rider on the white horse who is the Antichrist. He is the consummate one who will come uh, in uh, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Yeshua, or the name of Messiah. I don't think he'll come in the name of Jesus himself, but it, when Yeshua says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, meaning they'll come in the name of, of um, there are people who do, do say that there are the second coming of Messiah. Don't get me wrong, but the Antichrist will be the final um, one. He will be the, the consummate false messiah who comes on the earth and he's the one that is going to kind of get the 70th week uh clock ticking so let's continue in this second answer using the time-honored hermeneutic uh, that is the biblical study method method of comparing scripture with scripture we discover from revelation 6 um two a rider on a white horse will go forth conquering and to conquer so he is going to be touting peace but following quickly behind him will be conquering and to conquer right he's going to be followed quickly by the wars and other wars and rumors of wars and so yes he will be able to um make peace in places where others have failed particularly most notably the middle east right i mean honestly once a ruler is able to broker a peace deal between israel and and the surrounding arab nations that will be uh, momentous that will be monumental that will be absolutely something that has really never happened on a long-term scale even if he only describes it in terms of hey let's make a seven year or 14 year or a a 30 year or 50 year or 100 year whatever um or let's do like a like a test trial a five-year version like i think the um one of the uh, accords i can't remember which one uh you know they all these peace accords that have been brokered between um middle east uh countries and uh israeli leaders you know we've had uh trump in there most notably recently broking a deal between israel and her neighbors usually it's like an american president who's brokering a peace deal helping to try to bring stability to that region of the of the world but once the antichrist is able to do that then it's it'll seem like everything's fine but there will still be wars and 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 conflict in other parts of the world. I go on to say that the only way we know who this writer is is by comparing Revelation 6 with Matthew 25, 24, 5. And the answer is he is the false Messiah. He is the uh Antichrist. He is the one who is opposing Christ, but also openly replacing Christ by saying that he is the one who is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who's able to do what no other Messiah figure was able to do. And thus so many people are going to follow after him. You know, they're going to lend their voice to his um, agenda. They're going to give in to his um, politics, his brand of of scheming. Uh, 
the Bible describes in other places as this very clever man, this this man of intrigue, this man who who wins over people with his with his flattery and his smooth words and his lies. Of course, we who are in the know, we know that they're lies, but people who are not filled with the Spirit of God and don't have an understanding of end-time events, they will be deceived. They will be duped into thinking that he's a man of peace and a man of of advancement and a man of, of progress. And I mean, who doesn't want peace in the Middle East, right? We pray for, for peace in the Middle East, for the peace of Jerusalem. And yet, he's going to accomplish seemingly what others have failed to do before him. Um, so uh, let, let's continue to watch these events. Um, he is the false messiah, and with his coming, there will also be a proliferation of false messiahs loosed into the world. And if we don't have enough already, um, there will be more. Let's continue. We might be able to finish this tonight, this uh, particular slide. We're on slide number 72 of 82. We've got 10 slides left, if I can just keep reading. So we're talking about the first few seals in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 6, the first few seals within the 70th week. The next few events that should be on the calendar uh, in front of us. Will it, will it start tomorrow? I don't think so. Um, there's still some other events that need to take place, but it could start very, very soon. It could start this year, I think, um, or within a few years. So answer number two continued. At present, we see many false messiahs in the world. We undoubtedly will continually continue to see other false messiahs appear. Um, the indication with the operation, I'm sorry, with the opening of the first seal is that essentially, and picture this in your mind, a line has been crossed in God's countdown, right? In God's calendar, a countdown that has started and a new phase in God's plan has begun. That's why I believe that it's important for us to look at these events with a certain amount of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, practical common sense built in where rather than just kind of spiritualizing or allegorizing or historicizing or idealizing events, we're looking at events that will take place on a, on a kind of a more pragmatic level. They are real events. And this is not just some spiritualization talking about the spirit of Antichrist that's going to hit the scene. Remember, Yeshua's first coming took place with pinpoint precision according to God's calendar. And it was it was literal, right? When the prophecies foretold of of a son being born, right? Isaiah chapter nine: Unto us a son is born, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And when we read in Isaiah fifty three later on that this one, this suffering servant, would be bruised for our iniquities and, and wounded for our transgressions, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things weren't just spiritual; they were real. Jesus was physically born; he came into the world. And he physically hung on a cross. He was literally bruised and crushed for our transgressions. So the first coming um, described in the prophets, prophecies of old, were of real events. They were literal. Why should we be surprised or why should we expect anything different at its second coming? They will be real events. And I believe they even will be a, uh, perhaps a close tie into the festivals, just like they were in the first coming, right? Yeshua came according to God's calendar of events, Passover, Unleavened Bed, First Roots, Pentecost, etc., during his first coming. I believe, and we'll get to this in time, that the second coming will mirror the significance and possibly even take place on or around the fall festivals of, um, of uh, Yom, uh, I'm sorry, um, What's the first of the of the seven festivals? I'm drawing a blank in the in the fall. Um, uh, Feast of Trumpets. There we go. Drawing a blank there. Feast of Trumpets followed by 
um, Yom Kippur, and then followed by Sukkot, the Feast of, of uh, Tabernacles. So those are still future on um, God's calendar, right? They fall, in, they come in the fall part of the year, and I believe they will um, uh, correspond with the second coming of Messiah. But we presently see, and as I continue with my slide, we presently see lots of false messiahs in the world, and we undoubtedly will continue to see others who will appear, right? There will be many people who say, I'm Christ, or I'm the Messiah, or I'm the, I'm the leader you've been looking for. You know, we've got our false religions in the world and our false messiahs. No surprise there. No, no, nothing really different in that regard. But as the second coming of the true Messiah approaches, the devil needs to wrap up his program because he he seems to have this sense of the urgency of the matter as well. Particularly as we're going to see when we start to study the Book of Revelation, God actually kicks Satan out of heaven at the midpoint so that Satan is thrown down to earth and he realizes he has a short time, 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days. He has a very short time to enter into Antichrist incarnate and begin um, unleashing his his wrath against Israel, against the woman, uh, against uh, the offspring of, of Israel, against Christians, against anyone who would oppose him, etc., etc. So, Yes, we're going to see things getting worse and worse as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Yeshua. I go on to say that the indication with the opening of the first seal is that a line has been crossed, a countdown has started, and a new phase in God's plan has begun. The observant, discerning, and spiritually alert person will know that. And how will they know that? Well, let's keep reading. Continuing with answer number two, Israel was told both in Daniel 9.27 as well as Isaiah 28.15 and 18, that she would enter into a covenant that is a peace accord with a strong leader to her far north, Ezekiel 38, 15. This leader, the Antichrist we know, he will have the resources and clout to make the peace accord stick, right? So um, Trump uh, uh, had some peace process in mind. Before that, we had other uh, presidents. Like I said, we've had Carter. He was the one I was trying to think of. Uh, earlier, and I couldn't remember the aging president, but before, even before him, we had Clinton. And um, I mean, we're aware of all these different peace accords that have been tried and they didn't really stick. Maybe they were implemented for a few months or maybe a, a, a trial period of a few years, but there wasn't lasting peace is the point I'm trying to say. Um, maybe those were the precursors for the one that the Antichrist is going to take and strengthen. Maybe he doesn't really need to create a brand new peace treaty. He can just take one that's already on the books Right, either the Abraham Accords or the, 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 um, I don't even remember all the names of all the peace accords that are on the books, but there's multiple ones, and he can simply reword it for his, um, own, uh, perspective and his own needs and the needs of current Israel and the current, um, enemies that are around her. And, you know, voila, something will happen and he'll be able to make something, uh, come together that was not able to stick before. And it will, for the first few years, at least for the first three and a half years, the first, half of the 70th week, it'll seem like peace is there. In fact, Israel will be able to um, start or continue um, her uh, temple services, right? They'll either have started them before then, building a temple, um, or they will be able to um, continue or uh, start a brand new one, or they'll be able to continue what they've already been doing. And of course, this requires uh, a certain amount of control on the temple mount, which currently is impossible you know you go up there and try to start building a, a, a jewish temple and you're going to start world war three that's what's going to happen so we already know that there are certain events that we can be looking forward to in the news that are going to signal the beginning of this 70 week time period and the beginning of um 
God's clock ticking again. This leader, I say, he's going to have the resources to make this peace accord uh, stick this time. That peace accord will begin the 70th week of Daniel. So those are things that we should be looking forward to. And I say looking forward to because as believers, we realize that this is signaling, signaling the final sequence of events that's going to usher in the return of Messiah back to planet Earth. On the other hand, we know that persecution is right around the corner. Are we looking forward to that? No, we're not looking forward to great tribulation. We're not looking forward to, to martyrdom. However, because our blessed hope is in Messiah, it doesn't matter. We don't love our lives um, only if we can stay alive. We don't, we, we, we really shouldn't um, be concerned if the Antichrist threatens to kill us and take our lives if we don't recant and renounce our faith, right? Um, he's going to try. And there will be a great falling away, and a good number of people who claim to be Christian will actually lose their faith, right? We already have people these days, what's, what do we say, deconstructing their faith, falling away from their parents' religion, you know, stepping away, abandoning it, as it were. But even more so as these events unfold and lawlessness increases in the world and all of these disturbances uh, of these seals start to unfold, there'll be more and more people who just throw in the towel and say, you know, it's not worth it being a believer. It's not worth it being a Christian. It's not worth it because there's too much opposition, too much um, uh, persecution. And eventually at the midpoint, when the tribulation of and the wrath of Satan was really poured out, I believe then it will be even harder to name the name of Messiah Yeshua because uh, Antichrist will definitely target those people. So... I go on to say to identify the first three seals as merely historical events that have no reference to a beginning point provides no help in understanding the sequence of end time events as recorded in Revelation. It would provide no help in enabling God's bond servants, right? Revelation 1.1 at the time of the 70th week. Um, it won't help them to be able to prepare for the events revealed in the book of Revelation. Even though when we read through the book of Revelation, there's this sense of urgency and expectancy not really a sense of imminency. You, when you read the, the, through the New Testament, you almost get the sense that the first century believers were expecting Jesus to return right within their lifetime. And there is that sense um, when you read it, right? Even the book of Revelation talks about, you know, when Yeshua starts dictating this revelation to John, he says, write down things which are soon to pass, soon to come to pass, which are going to happen soon. And yet it's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus gave those words to John. I mean, I've got to scratch my head and go, Lord, um, you and I need to work on this definition of the word soon, right? Now, obviously, I'm being funny, but Yeshua's version of the word soon isn't our version of the word soon, right? God's timetable doesn't always correspond to what our timetable is when it comes to this idea of soon or about to happen. And so what does that give us when we read about those words that are soon to happen? Should we look for... Um, Inerrance, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that Yeshua could return at any moment, right? Um, that that uh, we don't need to have any precursors? Or should we instead have a sense of urgency and expectancy? So when we're talking about the second coming of Messiah, is it imminent? From the moment that he gave the words to John in the book of Revelation, was he saying that I could return at any moment, even before you finish your next meal? Is really the rapture or the second coming of Messiah, is it imminent? Is that what we're talking about? Or instead, is Yeshua saying that my return is urgent and you need to expect it? I'm of the understanding that Yeshua was not 
teaching imminency, at least not until certain things took place first, right? Man of lawlessness is revealed. The great falling away takes place. The abomination of desolation is set up, etc., etc. Those events must take place first. Read uh, the first and second books of Thessalonians to, to get this. Yeshua also hints at this. But the idea that um, there are events that precede Yeshua's second coming and arrival and even the rapture and the, and the tribulation. There are things that lead up to that. And so with that in mind, what Yeshua was teaching was not imminency, at least up until a certain point. There will be a time when his second coming is imminent and, his, and the rapture is imminent, but not before certain events take place first. But until that time, then I believe what he was teaching was urgency and expectancy. So let's keep going. So we need these precursors because they're going to help prepare us for what's going to take place in these last days. Let's keep going for the next um, uh, few minutes. How do we know the first seals of Revelation 6 are within the 70th week of Daniel? Point number three of four points. From Daniel 9.24, we learn that 70 weeks was given to Israel to, remember these things, finish their transgression, to make an end of their sin, to make atonement for their iniquity. In 927 of Daniel, we learn that the one remaining seven-week, the final seven-year period to be fulfilled, has at its midpoint the setting up of the abomination of desolation, right? Which is Daniel 11, uh, 31, as well as 12, 11. So it's not just Daniel 9 that talks about the midpoint, which is a very, very important event that I believe, if we're living during that time period, will be unmistakable, because Yeshua talks about that event as well. Indeed, as I continue in this answer number three, Jesus makes reference to that particular event in Matthew 24, 15, the Olivet Discourse. This is given in his response to the disciples' questions about his ultimate return. Also, I remind you that in the Olivet Discourse, Yeshua identifies certain events that are parallel in Revelation 6. That we're look, that's what we're looking at right now. He identifies these certain events that will precede the abomination of desolation. So going back to that chart, I'll flash it on the screen in post-production. Um, that chart uh, reminds us of that leading up to the midpoint, there's the four horses of the apocalypse. But these events are described by Yeshua as the beginnings of birth pains. And so if you know anything about being pregnant, you don't just go from having a slim tummy to the very next day, having the baby, uh, you know, bulging out of your belly and you're ready to, to, to give birth. It doesn't work that way. Every woman will tell you who's given birth before that um, there's a there's a time period, right? It starts out small and then things grow, quite literally, right? Your belly grows and swells and swells until eventually the uh, birth pangs start to kick in, right? They're spaced out apart at first, but as it gets closer and closer to the actual birth, then and the delivery day that you and your doctor discuss then eventually the birth pains and the contractions and those types of things will get closer and closer and more defined and, and more painful until what eventually your water breaks and then then it's imminent at that point in time i mean only up until that point in time it's not really imminent right you're not ready to give birth right after you realize that you're pregnant right after you you know you go and get the ultrasound and you find out that there's a tiny little baby in your room right and he's just this, you know the size of of a of a of a of a, a dot on a page um he's very very small the size of a of a of a, a, a grain of rice well that's not when you should be um thinking of of imminency right the baby can't won't come out the next day it doesn't work that way so we're talking about the birth pangs that lead up to the birth and the signs that we can um look at that will help us discern what's happening Let's keep going for the next five or 10 minutes and finish this out. Like I said, I only have 82 slides and I'm on number 77, so I think I should be able to finish this. Number three, continue. 
since the conclusion of that final week will be will bring in everlasting righteousness, especially for Israel, right? She already has it available. Everlasting righteousness is available to her in the person of Messiah Yeshua. But she corporately still needs to accept it. She needs to embrace it. And so we're talking about events that impact Israel. Remember, Daniel is given this um, dream in Daniel chapter 7. And, and in Daniel chapter 9, he's given the interpretation of this vision that we're describing. And this corresponds all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. But we're talking about the culmination of events that will um, usher in not just the return of Yeshua, but the establishment of God's kingdom here on earth with Israel ruling with Messiah on earth. Well, she's not going to go into that thousand-year kingdom the way she is now with rejecting Jesus. It doesn't work that way. God's not going to bring that Israel into the kingdom with him. Rather, Israel has to go through this refinement and this crucible. She has to be put into the, the, the fire itself and come out the other end. I mean, two-thirds of Israel is going to be wiped out. I mean, that's, that's very, very tragic to, to accept that, that that's the reality of, of unbelieving Israel today. But that's what it's going to take to bring her to her knees, to accept her Messiah, to look on him whom she pierced, who, who, uh, who he was pierced, that she uh, uh, crucified, and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, right? Zechariah chapter 14. So that's what we're talking about, bringing in this everlasting righteousness. It's already available on an individual level, but Israel corporately still has rejected that and needs to be brought to that place where she accepts that. And that is exactly what these events are going to um, cause Israel to do. I continue by saying it will without question be a critical time period in history and the conclusion of history as we now know it, right? These last seven years that we're talking about are really the end of human history before the establishment of the thousand year period, which will then give way into the eternal state of existence where God dwells with us eternally. So in conclusion and wrapping up tonight, I say the events included in that week would clearly have been within the scope of Jesus' response to disciples' question about his coming and of the end of the age. Let's finish reading these slides. We're on point number four, and I think I will finish this tonight. In Matthew 24, 34, Jesus says that the generation that sees all these things will be the generation that will see the gathering together of his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, what are these things that Jesus is referring to when he says the generation that sees these things? What is he talking about? Continuing in this question number four, in context, I believe it's clear that he's making reference, that is Yeshua, our Lord. He's making reference to the events that he just described in verses 3 through 31. Go back and read Matthew 24. Therefore, my understanding is that the coming of Messiah will be within the lifetime of that generation which will see the events described, not within the lifetime of any random generation that is living on planet Earth of of uh, at the time so i elaborate by saying it this way the generation that does quote see these things in quote is a time frame note according to my understanding of what Yeshua is laying out this note eliminates the possibility that those events are just general and indefinable events that have been going on in history that's what i'm trying to say is i believe that yeshua is giving us clues that that generation, these gener that generation that will see these things. What things? The things that will unfold in the first half of the last seven years of human history, the 70th week of Daniel. Let's continue. So 
Um, that concludes with the questions and the answers to points uh, of, of those. Uh, you know, the question was, let me back up. How do we know the first seals of Daniel 6 are within the 70th week? This is the conclusion there. So now, my final statements in my last two slides here, um, and then we'll conclude our study for tonight, is here's what I have to say. Although our world is presently witnessing events that are reflected in the first three seals, it seems apparent to me that when the covenant is signed, initiating the 70th week of Daniel, those same events will in some way intensify, right? Just like the birth analogy that we've been using, when the time comes for the baby to be, I mean, right around the corner, then the birth pangs will intensify. They'll get closer together, and eventually your water's going to break, and then, then you know it's time to rush to the hospital. Etc. Etc. Um, so, in the final analysis, the true bond servant will know when the world has entered the seventieth week. And I might interject and remind you, Yeshua talks about how that his second coming will be like a thief in the night. But then he goes on to say that you are not in the dark. And then Paul also picks up on the words of the Master and carries them into his letters in Thessalonians. He talks about the thief of the night, thief in the night language analogy. But Paul also reminds us in his letters to the second in, to the Thessalonians that we that we believers are not in the dark, so that this day should overtake us like a thief. And why aren't we in the dark? So how will we know? My final slide, very short and to the point. When the covenant is signed between Israel and some political leader to her north, right? Ezekiel thirty-eight fifteen. Compare that with Isaiah twenty-eight fifteen and eighteen. That's how we'll know that things are beginning to. Um, uh, be very imminent and urgent or expectant. When that happens, then the world will witness the events clearly described by Jesus in both the Olivet Discourse and in Revelation chapter 6. And so, even though this is the conclusion to this part of our study for the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel 70th weeks, as you see, let me turn back over to the um, topical uh, list. You'll see starting next week, We'll begin to look at this excursus on Antichrist according to Robert Van Campen, his perspective on who this Antichrist figure is. So we'll still be in the book of Daniel, and we'll probably use parts of Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 to augment that part. But we're going to begin to see that this Antichrist figure that's going to come on the scene, who's going to sign this, or, you know, I don't know if he's going to create the peace treaty, or he's going to just borrow one that's already on the books, but either way, his presence in the world is something that um, we can begin to realize is the um, one of the markers that opens those seven seals that that begins to um, let us know that we're right around the corner. Remember, let me, uh, uh, this graphic here on the screen, the white horse, that's the Antichrist hitting the scene at the beginning of the seven seals, right? Um, he's the one right here at the first seal, Antichrist. And in this chart, he's the one listed at, at number one. So right at the very, very far left of the chart, that's what we're really kind of anticipating. So let's turn next week. We'll start talking about Antichrist and begin to get a look at uh, precursors, types and shadows of Antichrist who've already hit the scene. In fact, what we're going to be doing is showing how that the Bible gives us enough t details on Antiochus Epiphanes that we can begin to realize that the overlap between the language and the Bible of Antiochus is really describing the final 
um, a wicked ruler known as Antichrist, and that there's this overlapping or near-far or type-and-shadow effect, uh, a precursor uh, aspect going on. But that'll do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to TetzeTorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Tour Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in it's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of of uh, of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat, uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here, or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link, as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so 
absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity. And I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well, too. I mean, uh, God... Uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariaman Lyman Hanavi. The next thirty minutes is given over to this topic of um, apologetics, and so we're comparing and contrasting the biblical unitarian perspective against that of the biblical trinitarian perspective i'll flash a little graphic on the screen so you can see what the biblical unitarian understands about god about the messiah and about the holy spirit how they relegate god to the only to only being god the father and the single god there is jesus in this model thus becomes uh, merely a human being a glorified human being right the exalted messiah yes and he's worthy of worship uh, because of what he did on the cross, but nevertheless, he's 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 a human being, and then the Holy Spirit in this model is an impersonal force of action, uh, a gift that God can bestow to mankind, um, or he's just another name for God, another way of describing God, uh, the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of God who is Spirit, who is holy, and therefore, since God is holy and God is Spirit, then when the Bible says the Holy Spirit is just another way for describing God. This is the biblical Unitarian model, the non-Trinitarian model, which I don't agree with. But we've been looking at this final verse in our study, or we're in the final week of this study. These will be the final parts. I'm going to wrap this verse up tonight, and we'll be ready to look at a different verse next week. Psalm 45, verse 6 reads out of the NIV, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And uh, as we've already noted, this verse is repeated in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 8. So the Biblical Unitarian um, website reminds us that, and this is their perspective, that when the writer to the book of Hebrews borrows the phrase, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, or the, um, uh, the throne of God, uh, you, O Lord, are forever and ever, and your throne is a scepter of righteousness, According to the Unitarian understanding of the scriptures, it's not God the Father addressing God the Son. Instead, the better rendering or translation is, your throne is God forever, instead of your throne, O God. They turn the nominative into a, I'm sorry, they turn the vocative into a nominative. Indeed, the Hebrew is really just a simple nominative, but the Greek can be understood as either a nominative or a vocative. I'll explain those phrases in a moment, so don't get lost. And so their understanding, as you can see on my screen, is, it means that God is the authority, the throne of the king, and the king reigns with the authority of God. This king, and by extension the Messiah, the true king of Israel, has been especially anointed by God. And so the psalmist was not speaking of an exalted Messiah who is very God himself, according to the biblical Unitarian model. Instead, Unitarians believe, and non-Trinitarians as well, you don't have to be Unitarian, but you're just non-Trinitarian. They believe that the psalmist was speaking of the earthly king that God would seat on the throne that God himself gave his authority to. And so it's God's throne that this earthly king or human king sits on, whether it be David or Solomon or 
uh, Jesus himself. It's still God's throne. And so that's, that's the throne that is eternal. But the, the king that sits on it is merely human. He's mortal. So let's look at these uh, verses or look at this verse in uh, English and in Hebrew and in Greek. Just real quick before we jump into my final comments. Um, let me see. Is that the size I want? Yeah, that's good. Um, Psalm 45, 6 says, Your throne, O God, this is NASB, by, by the way. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. And in the Hebrew, we looked at this last week as well. Um, in the Hebrew, it says, Kisacha Elohim Olam Ve'ed. That's the first clause. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then it continues, Shevet Mishor Shevet Malchutecha. The scepter of, of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And we noticed how that the Hebrew is not using what is known as the vocative. Vocative is a form of speech when you address an individual like, Hey, Ariel, come take a look at this. In my example, Hey, Ariel, the word Ariel would show up in the case known as vocative, V-O-C-A-T-I-V-E. And so in that form of address, then if this Bible verse were saying, um, but of the Son, it says, you, O Lord, or um, your throne, O Lord, the first two words, kisaka Elohim, would be in the vocative address. Kisaka, your throne, Elohim, would be, O God, or O Lord. Most non-Trinitarian groups believe that this is not to be understood in the vocative. Instead, this is what we call nominative, a simple noun clause where... The first word is a noun, the second word is a noun, so it's a noun clause, and we can insert a verb in between. Um, the Your throne is God, or the throne given of God, or God is your throne, are those first two words, Kisacha Elohim. There's one Jewish translation uh, that Rashi comments on that, that puts it back into the vocative and says, um, your throne, O oh, someone, is forever and ever. But instead of saying, uh, instead of translating the word, the Greek, the Hebrew word Elohim as God, they use the lesser nuanced translation of the word Elohim, which is magistrate or judge, which can be used to to describe an earthly king or someone other than um, God Almighty in, in heaven. And so, Kisacha Elohim is translated as your throne, O oh, judge. It's still vocative in its case. In its rendering, but it takes the word Elohim as understood as an earthly king. So that's the verse. That's some of the structural analysis that we looked at um, in other uh, passages. We also looked briefly at, and I want to show you this. We also briefly looked at the Greek of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse Eight, where it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. We notice right away that from the Septuagint, I'm sorry, from the uh, uh, English translation of the book of Psalms of the Old Testament, instead of saying the scepter of your kingdom, it now says the scepter of his kingdom. So it switches from um, uh, first person to third person, right? So your kingdom would be first person, but his kingdom is third person. Why is that the case? Because there are two different manuscript variants that exist. We'll see this in a moment. But notice, first of all, in the English, the uh, clause in English is in the vocative in this version of the Bible. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Notice the addressee is the Son, according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, which is inspired by God himself. 
the your throne, O God, is the vocative form of address. O God. We don't even have to have the word O there, just your throne, God. That's vocative. If we want to swap this around and turn it into the nominative, we would say, but of the Son, he says, your throne given of God, or your throne is God, or, but of the Son, he says, uh, God is your throne forever and ever, something to that effect. One of the non-Trinitarian renderings of this passage that you read about in, in some versions of your Bibles, um, and particularly you'll read it in a Biblical Unitarian version like the REV, as well as the Jehovah's Witness uh, New World Translation uh, switches this into the uh, nominative, the non-vocative. Let's look at the Greek real quick of this um, passage. It says, pros deton huion ha Thronasu, I'm sorry, the first clause, prostetan huion, but of the son, he says, the 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 he is implied, it's not actually in there. There's the the verb is not supplied. Prostetan huion, literally towards the son. Uh, and then the 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 clause in question, hathronasu, the throne of you, hathas, O God, or simply God. Hathronasu um, hathas, aston iona to ionas kai. He rabdas teis euthutetas, rabdas teis basileasu. And um, the last word in the Greek here, where it says, I'm reading the Greek, it says SOU, SU. There's a variant, you see there's a little star next to it. Let me highlight the word so you can see what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a star next to it in this um, tool that I'm using. And the tool that the star lets you know that there's a variant in the translation. In the Greek manuscripts, there's another variant that's, that doesn't say Tes Basileus Su, that is to say the kingdom of you. Instead, it says Tes Basileus Autu, that is the kingdom of him or his kingdom. So that's where, that's why in say, let me bring up this uh, for you. That's why, for instance, say in the KJV, let me bring it up for you. In the KJV of this same verse, it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Well, if we translate thy out of the ancient uh, English back into normal English, it's your kingdom, right? Your kingdom. First person. And this is because the manuscript they're using says, Tes basileus su. And the word su there in the Greek is the um, personal pronoun of you or your or thy kingdom. But comparatively, if we look over here on the right side, and when I scroll the, the screen over in this tool, this is the NESB translation. And it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Tes basileus autu. Right? That's third person. The word autu is the personal pronoun of him or his, rather than the first person personal pronoun of you or your or thy in the ancient English. Old English. So those are two different um, uh, translations. Um, just two, as you can see on my screen, it's just KJV on the left and new NASB on the right. Uh, does that significantly change the argument of who God's addressing? Well, according to the biblical Unitarian or the non-Trinitarian model, when the um, manuscript said the kingdom of you or your kingdom, since the first person in the in the um, in the verse is God himself, God the Father, according to their understanding, then the your kingdom corresponds with first person God, you and your. And indeed, that seems to be how it reads. Let me go back up, uh, just show you this one again. If the addressee is the Father, but of the Son he says, thy throne, O God. If we instead say, but of the Son he saith, um, 
uh, the throne given of God or God is your throne or your throne is God, <clears throat> which sounds rather odd, right? Your throne is God. How could a chair be God? How could God be a chair? We'll explain that in a moment. But according to the non-Trinitarian model, um, thy throne, O, o God, is not accurate. It should be thy throne given of God, right? Inserting a verb that doesn't exist in the Greek. Or thy throne is God, again, inserting a, a verb between the, the two nominatives, the two nouns, which is not wrong in and of itself. We do it in the second clause. A scepter of righteousness is, notice the word is there is in italics in the KJV. That indicates that it's not in the original Greek. So we have to add, we have to insert um verbs sometimes to smooth out our English translation, but they opt for your throne is God or God is your throne. Swap the syntax around, put the two nominatives in a different order from predicate nominative to subject nominative or something to that effect, predicate clause. I hope I'm not confusing with all these grammar phrases. This is this is kind of a summary and conclusion, and I've already established all the grammar in the previous studies, so you have to go back and listen to those studies if you're if you're getting lost right now. But according to the non-Trinitarian um, interpretations of this passage, thy throne and thy kingdom, notice the two thys, right? The two, um, the Greek would have sue and sue in both of these spots. They believe that since this is one of the um, um, older of the manuscripts, uh, that they believe that this is the one that is the most accurate. I'm sorry, it's, it's a newer manuscript, but it's the more accurate of the um, understandings. Um, but comparatively, if you look at the NASB, which is uh, using an older manuscript, it says the scepter of his kingdom. Sounds rather odd, but of the son, he says, your throne, right? Notice subject is Yeshua. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the word God there is Yeshua, according to the Trinitarian model. And the scepter, righteous scepter, is the scepter of his kingdom? Why would you suddenly jump from first person to third person? In one verse that's what the non-trinitarians try to highlight and say see that version doesn't make any sense anyway so we believe that it shouldn't instead doesn't it make more sense to say if you're going to talk about jesus which we believe it is talking about jesus just the word god there is referring to the father or it's it's another way of saying um god's throne your throne is god uh forever and ever or god is your throne forever and ever, or the throne given of God is forever and ever, and a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy, i.e. Messiah, your kingdom, right? So that's why they say that. All right, in these final few moments, let me read through um, uh, some Trinitarian answers, and this will co conclude our study for tonight. I don't know if I'll get through all of them, but I want to read a few of them. This first one is from Carm, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, and here's their answer, right? We've already seen that the non-Trinitarian model tries to strip Jesus out of this verse, by saying that the throne referenced is God's throne, or it's a non-vocative form of address to Jesus in the sense that um, it's either referring to the throne of God or the authority of God that's given of God, or um, even if we do address as vocative, I mean, the form of address like, oh God, then it's not referring to God. Um, uh, Jesus as God is rather instead referring to um, either a... Uh, a, a, an earthly king as a, as an Elohim, a judge, a magistrate, a ruler, a prince, something like that. Or when it says God, it's talking about God in heaven, but not the Son. All right, let's read Karm's answer. Um, and they're making their case against the Jehovah's Witness, which is the same position that the biblical Unitarian takes, which is non-Trinitarian, that the Messiah, the Messiah is simply a, he's merely a man. Although the Jehovah's Witness has taken one step further and say that Jesus is this created being um, that God created 
as the first of his uh, uh, acts of creation, and then Jesus created everything else. So he's not God Almighty. He's a lesser God. He's a demigod. He's a mini God. He's a mini me. You guys get the get the view. All right. So Karm brings up this point that um, I'm not. Gonna, I am not going to read all of Karm. So I'm just going to skip through some of it. Karm brings up this point. Give me a second. I want to hide uh, that little guy right there. Karm brings up the uh, um, uh, details about. Um, What's particularly interesting is about this verse is that God is addressing the Son according to the Trinitarian model and according to the most natural reading of the text. If we take it in the vocative and we take it as the authoritative text that was given to the writer to the book of Hebrews, which drew from the understanding that, yes, the book of Psalms was referencing an early king, an earthly king, but in type shadow fashion, it looked forward to the greater Messiah King, who is very God himself, and therefore the writer to the book of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit to include this verse in his book and say, but of the Son, he says, right? No, remember that first clause, but of the Son, that part's not in the book of Psalms, but of the Son, he says, but the writer to the book of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say that, that the psalmist was actually referring to King Messiah, All right? So that's what Karma is addressing. Because of the Watchtower presupposition that Jesus is not God, they choose the first version, which is thy throne, O God. I'm sorry, um, God is your throne forever and ever, right? Which is the, the nominative form of this clause rather than the vocative. Remember, vocative is as if you're addressing a person like, O God, that's vocative. But in the nominative form, it's um, just God is your throne. Let me see if I have that graphic on the screen, if I remember uh where you can see the differences there we go when we're talking about the elohim as vocative it's applied to the king your throne oh god that's vocative form of address but if we take elohim as predicate it's your throne is god so predicate meaning at the very end of the sentence the uh, object of the sentence your throne is god elohim is the word for god in the hebrew God is the word for Elohim in Hebrew. Uh, God is the translation. So your throne is God. That's the uh, taking Elohim as predicate, putting God at the very end of the sentence as the object when applied to God. But we could also see that Elohim as the subject, throw it to the very beginning of the sentence. When applying to God, we can say God is your throne. So it's just a swapping around the syntax, the word order. Either your throne is God or God is your throne. Either way, with the um, supplied verb is, which isn't in the Greek, Either way, this is the nominative form, Those the, the ones below. So that's what's going on in the non-Trinitarian versions. The Trinitarian model opts for your throne, O God, the vocative, the very first line that you can see on your screen there. Okay, so let's go back over to Karm. Karm says, because of the Watchtower presupposition that Jesus is not God, they choose the first version. Otherwise, the Father would be calling Jesus God, and that goes against Jehovah's Witness theology. And I might add, it also goes against Biblical Unitarian theology. Yet, most Bibles do not translate it the way the New World Translation does. They choose the other way, right? The vocative form. Why? Well, there's two reasons according to uh, Karm. First, Hebrews 1.8 is a quote from Psalm 45.6, which says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom, right? In ESB. In fact... The ASV, KJV, NIV, and NKJV all translated as your throne, O God. That is the vocative form of address. The RSV translates it as your divine throne, right? The RSV and the e, the REV, which are both non-Trinitarian leaning Christian translations. Your divine throne endures forever and ever. The Jewish publications say something like your throne given of God 
or your throne, O judge, or something that effect. But obviously, a Jewish version is not going to make Psalm 45 6 sound like it's talking about a, 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 a messianic figure, unless, unless, and we talked about this last week as well, the Targums realized that, hey, this could be talking about a Messiah, but he's not a Messiah who's God, nevertheless. But either way, it could be a Messiah, just more likely just an earthly king. But Karm continues, this is high, um, the divine throne endures forever and ever, according to Karm, is a highly unlikely translation because it requires understanding the Hebrew noun for throne in the construct state, something extremely unusual when a noun has a pronominal suffix as this one does. Um, the KJV, NIV, and ASB all take the verse in its plain, straightforward sense, as do the ancient translations. So, um, so according to Karm, and I'm just scrolling past most of their answer, um, according to Karm, the best way to understand this verse is in the vocative and give it back to the idea that the writer to the book of Hebrews saw something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that caused him to pull the book of Psalms and the verse in Psalms into his letter and to ascribe that particular verse as if God were addressing the Son. Indeed, the context, really, whether we, in the end, folks, if you think about it, whether we say it's vocative or nominative, the context of the book of Hebrews is this expose of him showing and demonstrating how that Jesus is exalted above man and above angels. And yet, he's very God in chapter 1 and exalted above the angels, and yet he's human in chapter 2. And that's really the thrust of the context. If we were to zoom out and look at the book of Hebrews and put it back into its context and understand what the writer to the book of Hebrews is trying to convey, he's trying to let us know that this Jesus, whom he's describing, is greater than the angels and he's worthy of worship. He's very God himself in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he's also the one who is very man. He's, he's as the creeds say, he's true God and true man. He's fully God and fully man, or 100% God and 100% man in that sense. So that's really how we understand the passage, regardless of whether you switch it in from vocative to nominative or, or your argument goes that way. So I'm not going to read through the rest of Karm. You can on your own if you'd like to. I, um, I'll i supply the link to this uh, if you write in and ask me about it, or I might put it in the uh, um, uh, comment section of the video. But there's another um, Trinitarian-leaning... Um, Understanding here from a blog post, the key to the Trinity, your throne, O God. And let me just scroll down to kind of the um, conclusionary section and get kind of the gist of what this, um, here we go right here, uh, of what this blog says. They say, to sum up, when we look at Christ in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we say that, and look at these bullet points. Bullet point number one, the Son is God, right? Remember the writer to the book of Hebrews opens this verse up by saying, but of the Son, he says, and then in the vocative form, when he says, your throne, O God, it would be God the Father addressing Jesus as God, or calling God uh, the Son Elohim as well. So the Son is God. Bullet point number two, the Father is God, right? That's according to the non-Trinitarian model, that's one too many gods, but we as Trinitarians understand that um, seemingly contradictory language about Father being God and Jesus being God as well. The paradox created by the incarnation of God into uh, the Son. Uh, point number three, there are thus two persons who are each God, and yet there is only one 
God. That's the mystery and the nature of the paradox of the Trinity, the the ambiguity of the Trinity, as it were, the equivocation of of understanding that there's one God and yet three persons who are all God. And then the fourth bullet point, the Son is man and will be a sinless man forever. And so while never ceasing to be himself God, he will always have God the Father as his God. And so this is a very, very important point that I believe those non-Trinitarian groups like Biblical Unitarianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, Christadelphians, and other, you know, Glazini Christo, these other non-Trinitarian groups, the point that they fail to understand is that in the incarnation, Yeshua, the man, is total man. He's fully man. He's truly man, and yet he's truly God because he is the eternal word that has existed, as John says in his book, John 1, 1, 1 2, 3, he existed both with God and as God. The eternal word of God is no less God than God the Father, who has existed from all eternity. And so the eternal word of God is that second person of the Trinity who in time took on flesh. He, he as John describes it, he um, um, uh, uh, pitched his tent among us, right? He became human. He, he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That John describes it in John chapter 1. So the key to understanding this reference in the book of Hebrews from the book of Psalms is to understand that, yes, Jesus is the human Messiah, the king that God has established on God's very throne, that God's throne is the authority when we say your throne is God or your throne, the throne given of God or God is your throne, that kind of um, uh, symbolic language uh, when we say God is your throne. Does that mean that Jesus is sitting on God's lap, right? God the Father's lap? God is his throne, right? Like a little kid sitting on his father's lap? No, that's not what it means when we say God is your throne or your throne is God. It means the word God there is taken to be symbolic of God's authority. Your throne is God's authority or the authority that God vests in his very throne is your throne. The authority from God is your throne. God's authority is your throne or your throne. Uh, the, the authority of God is your throne or the throne of God throne is God's authority. You know, you can, you, you kind of have to work with the understanding of, of God as your authority. And the non-Trinitarian models understand that aspect about authority and God's throne and the metaphorical language, the symbolic language of go, throne of God, God is your authority, et cetera, et cetera. But where they get tripped up is that the writer to the book of Hebrews is not trying to prove God's authority in the context of his quote. Go back and read through the book of Hebrews and focus your attention and your energy on the first two chapters. Zooming out. When we look at the two chapters, chapter one is about the exalted deity known as Messiah, the God-man, the man who is truly God in his nature, in his essence, in all that he is in his eternal state. This is the one that the angels must worship. This is the one that is greater than any other earthly king that God could ever establish on a throne that God supports and that God endorses. The writer to the book of Hebrews is working his way through these quotes from the Old Testament and building his case that Jesus has existed from all eternity as very God. That's not just stated in this one verse, right? If this were the only verse in chapter one of Hebrews, where the writer calls Jesus God, well then, yeah, I could see how maybe we could argue for, well, it's just your non-Trinitarian version, 
your it's your trinitarian understanding versus my non-trinitarian interpretation etc we could we could go to blows if it was just this one verse we could say that there's very little context to build on but that's not what the writer to the book of hebrews is doing so i'm going to challenge my non-trinitarian brothers and sisters you biblical unitarians out there you Jehovah's Witnesses out there, you Christadelphians, you Iglesiani Christos, you Oneness Pentecostals. I'm only mentioning a scattering. I know there's lots more groups out there, the Mormon individuals, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll just flash a little list on the screen to show some other non-Trinitarian groups. But go back. I challenge you. Go back and read the writer to the book of Hebrews in context. Chapter 1, he's dealing with the exalted Messiah the heavenly divine Messiah. And then in chapter two, he portrays this earthly Messiah who can identify with us in his humanity, who took on flesh, who as a human being, nevertheless offered his body up to be sacrificed for God, for God his father, and yielded himself to the um, to the will of the father so that he could become the perfect sacrifice for us. And so that's what this particular blog is highlighting right the son of man is and will be a sinless man forever right he became a sin sacrifice but not for himself and so while never ceasing to be god himself he will also always have god the father as his god and that's why in certain places of the new testament he can pray to god his father and address god the father as god because he is human and that's what we humans do when we're addressing god we we address god as our god that just makes sense and so in closing they say these truths are the building blocks of the doctrine of the trinity and they don't and we don't get this view from a man-made doctrine doctrine or a creed but from the bible and so they just remind us that really it's the incarnation that helps us to understand not just the um principle of god and man uh, in their relation to one another, but the incarnation is the help us to understand um, the book of Hebrews here. God in chapter one and man in chapter two, and Jesus embodies both. Let's look briefly at Tim Haig. Uh, you can see I'm not going to be able to um, read all of this because of my time, but he also talks about that the sun is viewed as the, in contrast to the angels, the sun is viewed as the scepter of, of God, the one sitting upon the throne. The sun is also God, obviously. Uh, in the um, uh, Trinitarian perspective that Tim Haig is going to bring. I'm not going to read all of this, but Tim Haig talks about how that the Targums, the ancient Aramaic translations, we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to read all of this, but the Targum considered that this psalm is talking about King Messiah, not just King David or King Saul, Solomon or another earthly king, but the Targumists of the first century, right, the early few centuries leading up into the time period of Messiah, Yeshua, they believe that um, this verse was uh, addressed to Messiah. And so if they take the vocative, which uh, many, many ancient translations wouldn't have a problem with as long as they think that it's talking about an earthly ruler or a judge, but if they were to take the vocative and still apply the Messiah figure, then this is maybe the only place in the Old Testament where um, an earthly king is referred to as God as in G-O-D with a capital or lower, even something to that effect. But if we call an earthly king an Elohim, I mean, Moses was called Elohim before Pharaoh. And uh, in the book of Leviticus, some of the priests are called Elohim and things like that. So um, that's not really a problem. But um, uh, Tim Hague does a great job of bringing out some of the uh, rabbinic sources and showing us how that uh, to consider that this is a messianic passage in the book of Psalms is not problematic. 
as much as it is as uh, non-trinitarian groups would have us to believe that it shouldn't be that way so again i don't have time to read all of this um but um his conclusion, our brief discussion of this quote cannot conclude without mentioning that the text also establishes Messiah's humanity. Tim Haig brings up the same point that Karm and that other blog post brought up, which I myself bring up as well, is that in the Trinitarian model, it's not enough to say that Jesus is very God. We Trinitarians don't go around saying Jesus is God to the exclusion of also recognizing that Jesus is human. It's maybe the one Pentecostals that have a hard time understanding that Jesus is human. They just kind of throw everything into the lump, into the pot of Jesus being divine. But Tim Hay reminds us, this quote cannot conclude without mentioning that the text also establishes Messiah's humanity. He is exalted above his companions, as we continue to read about in, if we were to continue to read the rest of um, the Psalm and the book of Hebrews, the very next verse over. He's above, he's established above his companions, which are clearly not angels. Who are his companions? At least in the context of Psalm 45, his companions are humans. He's exalted above his companions, um, which are not angels in the context. He loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. And it is upon this basis that he proves himself to be the perfect son, the perfect human agent of God, the perfect obedient son to the Father, the Messiah that he is anointed above its companions clearly necessitates the incarnation. And I leave off with that there from Tim Higgs' quote, because that is the key to correctly interpreting the Bible passage from the book of Hebrews, which quotes the book of Psalms. And I might add, the non-Trinitarian models, they are often tripped up at the incarnation. That seems to be one of the primary tripping points or confusing points for non-Trinitarian groups, such as the ones that I flashed on screen earlier, or the ones that I mentioned, like the biblical Unitarians that we're talking about, they just don't get the incarnation. They think that Jesus is only a man, that he could not have been God in his existence at all. So that's their perspective, and I think that's the one that um, it displays that one of their weaknesses, one of their primary weaknesses. In closing, again, I don't have time to read all this, but I might refer you to Dr. Michael Brown, who is a leading Messianic Jewish apologetic uh, author. He has a book, Answering Jewish Objections, volume, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. And in volume three, I lifted this excerpt about this particular um, discussion that we're having. I'm not going to read it tonight, but instead, um, I want to jump down to some of his conclusions. Let me read, let me jump down to them. Find it here for you. He mentioned uh, the the he remember his arguments are more from a uh, he's addressing unbelieving Jews, national Israelites, rabbinic Jews who don't believe that Jesus is, is Messiah, and so he's going to pull in a lot of um, rabbinic resources and just like uh, Tim Hague does often. But um, let's see, so he's going to say, uh, let's see, let me back up. Let me back up and read just this part. And then I think we'll draw a study to a close with this part. This is um, Dr. Uh, Brown. He says, the Targum, remember the Targum is an ancient Aramaic translation that was available in the first few centuries before Jesus uh, came on the scene. And it is still available to Jewish people today. It's actually re reproduced within their own Pentateuch versions of their Bibles. Uh, like if you have a, a, a Hertz Pentateuch or a Chumash uh, Pentateuch uh, that's available, that if you visit any synagogue and pick up one of their Pentateuchs, which is more of a square-shaped book, um, 
it'll have the targum rendered in the Aramaic down on the on the page there. Um, many Jewish people don't look to the targum as any type of um, relevant translation at all today. Many modern Jews have kind of written it off because they, they believe a lot of it's been tampered with, just like the Septuagint. They, they don't really give it any really um, serious thought. But um, Dr. Brown reminds the readers that the, the targum renders this passage as your throne of honor, Yahweh, abbreviated in the targum, is forever and ever, reminding us. Um, when I say abbreviated, the word Yahweh is not written out. It's, that's what I mean. It's 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 yud yud. It's a, it's the um, circumlocution version of the tetragrammaton name. Instead of spelling out Y H V H with the letters yud and hey and vav and hey, they just put yud yud. That's what Doctor Brown's meaning by abbreviated. But they say that your throne of honor yud yud, which is a abbreviation form of Yahweh, is forever and ever, reminding us that the meaning of the original text is clear and straightforward. Meaning we don't have to suppose that the text is referring to someone other than God uh, in its address. And when we say God, the Trinitarian model says that when we say God, the context has to determine whether we're talking about God the Father or God the Son. So we don't have to say that it's God in the earthly ruler sense like Elohim or judge um, or magistrate or prince. We can say that it is God in heaven, but from a Trinitarian discussion, point of perspective, we have to ask, is it God the Father or God the Son? And since the writer to the book of Hebrews already establishes that God the Father is talking in the previous few verses, when we get to verse 8, but of the Son, he says that he must be God the Father. Therefore, your throne of honor, Yahweh, must be the Son. Why would God be talking to himself? So Dr. Brown reminds that the original text is clear and straightforward. Other classic rabbinic commentaries, such as Ibn Ezra and uh, Metsudat David, argue that the text means, quote, your throne is the throne of God, right? They're adding the non-vocative, i.e. the nominative phrase, or your throne is given up by God, inserting extra verbs that aren't actually there either in the Hebrew or the Greek. Um, so check out the Stone Edition for those uh, renderings. Uh, Dr. Brown continues in closing, in their recent Psalms commentary, Rosenberg and Zlotowitz translate this clause as, quote, your throne from God is everlasting, explaining, quote, the sense is that the kingstone is God's approval, which we agree with us from a Trinitarian model, uh, because he renders justice from it in accordance with God's will. Uh, even Ezra translates, your throne is the throne of God abiding, I'm sorry, adding another throne, right? Your throne is the throne. Neither the Hebrew nor the Greek has that extra throne. In the Greek would be thronos, and in the Hebrew would be uh, kisa. So uh, neither, neither one, or uh, ne neither the Hebrew nor the Greek has the, the extra throne there, but even Ezra puts one in there for his translation. And Dr. Brown reminds us, more interesting, however, is their context, quote, the Hebrew could also be rendered, your throne, O God, is everlasting. Right, your throne. And so in closing, Dr. Brown says this would not fit the context, which requires the king to be the subject. And um, um, so if not for the contextual difficulty, the translation would be fairly straightforward. And what is the primary difficulty? He, he nails it on the head. Dr. Brown says it's impossible for these commentators to conceive that the human king could be called Elohim, i.e. God. That's the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. In the, in the Greek would be um, Theos. But if that human king is the Messiah, and if the Messiah is divine, like we Trinitarians argue, then there's no valid reason to reject the obvious, clear rendering. And so in closing, Dr. Brown reminds us, and this will draw our study to a close, we can therefore repeat without hesitation what we stated at the outset, which is this. 
Psalm 45 proclaims the divine nature of the Messianic King, and we would do best to take the scriptures in their most obvious, basic sense, allowing the Bible to dictate our theology rather than imposing our theology on the Word of God. And so in closing, after quite a lengthy um, expose of this particular verse, we conclude that the best rendering using the book of Hebrews as our final authority, and why would we do that? In closing, let me just again put this in front of you. It's great to say that the Old Testament authors may not have understood it as referring to a divine Messiah. Okay, I get that. I granted that's true. There's a lot of of what we might call messianic truths that were not revealed to the Old Testament writers. Indeed, that's the, that's part of the whole mystery of the incarnation. The mystery that was hidden from many of the Old Testament writers was the incarnation of God into a human being. So that seems to make perfect sense. God's word was given to us in progressive revelation fashion. God gives truths to us progressively, revealing a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and a little bit more, culminating in the fullest revelation of who he is in the person of his son, Yeshua. So we recognize that the Old Testament had its information limitations, right? They had what we call mysterious aspects or paradoxes that they couldn't explain because God had not revealed them to them yet. The incarnation wasn't revealed until the um, intertestamental period, the, the time period between your two testaments in your Bible, that middle margin part, when Jesus walked and talked and lived among humans. That's when the incarnation, incarnation was revealed to humans. The mystery was revealed. And so thus, while the book of Psalms doesn't have to um, be understood first and foremost from a divine uh, Messiah perspective, a divine king. Nevertheless, our best hermeneutic and interpretive principle comes from realizing that the New Testament informs us of the Old Testament. It's the New Testament that reveals and provides the final definitions and interpretations of Old Testament uh, passages. And that's because God established that principle. God set that order that the later parts of Scripture would have the final um, interpretive um, descriptions and information, informative um, revelation of the earlier Scriptures. And so the writer to the book of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I'm saying this in closing. The writer to the book of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit to take this passage from the book of Psalms, bring it into his discussion about a divine Messiah, and highlight it for the purpose of demonstrating that Jesus is very God, that it's exist alongside God, the Father, as God the Son, without there being two gods. One God, three persons, a divine Messiah, the Word made flesh. And so the writer to the book of Hebrews uh, pushes that perspective. And this is evident, again, from the context. This isn't very evident from just reading one verse, but from the context of the, the, the book of Hebrews, it's evident. And we see then that the writer of the book of Hebrews takes this principle of a divine Messiah, and he um, provides the other side of the coin of the incarnation and showing the humanity of Jesus. It's the very same thing that the writer to uh, the book of John does. John does in the first chapter where he talks about in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He's describing a divine person of God, the person who was with God and is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, right? Without him, nothing was made. 
Uh, and then when we drop down to verse 18 of John, we read about, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what happens is John moves from, in context, John moves from describing the exalted divine person of God, the Messiah, the word of God, the divine aspect, he moves from that description into the human Jesus, the incarnation, the Messiah who walked among us, right? Who pitched his tent among us. That's exactly what the writers of the book of Hebrews did. Chapter one, the divine Messiah. Chapter two, the human Messiah. And so it all boils down to the two sides of the coin known as the incarnation. One side of the coin, a divine Messiah. The other side of the coin, a human Messiah. And that's exactly what we Trinitarians affirm in our um, understanding of God. And how do we know that? Because it's the New Testament that informs us of the divinity of what we'd otherwise be stuck in, like the non-Trinitarian groups out there, the monotheistic groups who are nevertheless um, non-Trinitarian. They're stuck in the humanity side, right? Judaism. Who's who's the Messiah? Oh, he's a man. Biblical Unitarianism. Who's, who's Jesus? Oh, he's a man. Uh, Jehovah's Witness. Oh, he's, a, he's an exalted man that God created, um, you know, long, 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 long time ago. Um, you know, Christadelphians, Iglesias, and Christo, he's just a man. He's just a man. Um, a lot of these groups get stuck on the idea that he's a man. Arianism, right, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses represent. Arianism, he's a created man. He's a created, or he's a created God-man, but he's not, he's not, he doesn't share the same divinity as God. They strip him of his true and total divinity, and that's their blindness, and they have that blindness because of their not accepting that the text is fully authoritative and they don't accept all of the text. They cherry pick which passages, even if they don't know they're doing it. So that's going to do it for our look at Psalm 45. And what we're poised now to look at next in our study of um, biblical Unitarian passages is if we look on the screen right here, we're going to turn next week to Psalm 110 verse 1, which is the uh, most oft quoted psalm in the apostolic scriptures, the writings, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We'll begin to turn to that passage and look at it from a Trinitarian perspective, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I'm grateful to be able to count my way from Passover to Pentecost, from Pesach to Shavuot, from Pentecost, which is the season of being set free by the blood of the Lamb, who is Messiah Yeshua, counting the Omer to the season of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the giving of your word and the giving of your, of your spirit, the giving of the Torah, the season of being filled with the words of Messiah and the spirit of Messiah. From Pesach to Pentecost, from, from Pesach to Shavuot, from Passover to Pentecost, it's all about Messiah. So thank you, Lord, that you have highlighted, thank you, Father, that you've highlighted your son in these festivals that we engage in uh, year after year. Thank you for the invitation to join you on this, um, this wonderful journey that we're on, to join you uh, on this, um, this, this discovery of who Messiah truly is. From the text, from the festivals that describe him, the dress rehearsals of Messianic Redemption. Thank you, Lord, for the study. Thank you for those who participated. Bless those who were able to make it for the live study. Bless those who couldn't make it, but keep them safe where they're at. Um, strengthen us, O Lord, as families, as believers, as those who are looking forward for your resurrection, uh, for the resurrection and your blessed second coming, Lord, like we studied in our first hour. Thank you, Lord, 
or um, uh, promises that are sure that we can bank on, that we can count on, that we can know that are sure to pass. Um, you will not abandon us, but you will come and uh, uh, gather us unto yourself. Continue, Lord, to um, strengthen us and um, um, protect us during this um, these evil last days that we live in. Um, keep us safe this week and bring us back together next week. We'll be careful give you, to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,